This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The events in Charlottesville, Virginia, have sparked a national conversation about ideologies that lead to violence. Here in Colorado, Denver police are getting nearly half a million dollars to counter terrorist recruitment and radicalization. Lieutenant Robert Wyckoff is in charge of this new program. And, Lieutenant, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. In light of what happened in Charlottesville, I'd like to start with whether you see white supremacists and neo-Nazis as a potential threat that the DPD should be paying attention to. Uh, It's absolutely a threat. Uh, What we saw last week, that hatred, that ugliness in Virginia, that's something that uh, we're keenly aware of in the city of Denver. Um, Our new uh, Countering Violent Extremism grant is designed specifically to train our officers and our community members about that kind of violence and hatred, and steps can be taken to avoid it. We're going to talk about how that money will be put to use in Denver in just a bit, but do you think a situation like last weekend in Charlottesville could happen in Denver? I'd like to think that it wouldn't happen in Denver. We take a lot of steps to avoid that type of violence. Um, We're very well-versed in protest and violent activity and how to respond to it. So uh, I think that we have the the steps in place and the programs in place to avoid that kind of activity. Can you give me examples of how you think the DPD is prepared for something that could get really tense like that? Well, one thing that we're really good at is community outreach. When we find out that a protest or a rally like that will take place, uh, we're very proactive in identifying who the group organizer is. We make contact with that person ahead of time, explain the rules to them, uh, you know, we we understand we want them to have a peaceful First Amendment activity, uh, but we expect them to abide by the law. And we also involve other community partners in that as well. So we really approach it from a teamwork point of view. Have you been in touch specifically with the mayor's office in the wake of Charlottesville? Just uh, I have not. I have or? not, but I know that the chief has. And there's right. always discussions in place about how we can prepare for activity that's happening around the country. Okay, so let's get to this idea of countering violent extremism and uh, the nearly half million dollars Denver police uh, has gotten from the federal government for this work. I, I suppose more broadly, how do you define violent extremism? Well, you know, a lot of people define it differently. What what we call it is violence committed uh, in the name of an ideology to further a political or a social agenda. And that would touch who? What kinds of groups? Well, there's lots of groups. You know, we're talking about obviously what we saw last week, the neo-Nazi, the white supremacist extremism. We see that. Uh, Black separatist extremism, sovereign citizen extremism, and of course, Al-Qaeda and ISIS types of extremism as well. And so that would be both homegrown and perhaps extremism that's imported in some regards. Absolutely. I think we need to be prepared uh, from a community point of view from all sorts of extremism. And you include left-wing groups in that? Uh, Of course. Yeah. Animal rights, uh, eco-terrorist extremism groups, those types of groups are uh, ones that could lead to violence as well. So this grant is connected with a Homeland Security Task Force to combat violent extremism. But Reuters reported earlier this year that the Trump administration might rebrand that associated task force, changing the name from countering violent extremism to countering Islamic extremism or radical Islamic extremism. And so to narrow its focus, uh, white supremacists, presumably, and other non-Muslim groups would not be covered. Do you have any directive that this money has to be used for the prevention of Islamic extremism only? Is that word coming from the federal no, government? No, it's not. Not at all. Okay. No, this this is our program is really going to be community based. Uh, we want to focus on uh, community resilience to any form of violent extremism. 
um, a recruitment, radicalization of any type that might lead to violence. Okay. So you're not narrowing its focus and you haven't heard that there are strings attached in that regard from the Trump administration at this no. point. No, we have not. Why do you think Denver was chosen for this work? What's the potential here for fighting violent extremism? Well, you know, uh, well, first of all, Denver has a proud tradition of uh, a history of welcoming refugees into the city. And so one component of our uh, grant is uh, significant outreach to our refugee and immigrant community. So I know that's a large component of it. Why are those communities good ones to reach out to for this kind of work? Well, because I think a lot of them come here, they're unfamiliar and they're and they're worried and they might feel disenchant, dis, disengaged from society. We want to be inclusive with all groups that uh, uh, that might feel that uh, they're being marginalized in any way. And of course, our refugees and immigrants are, are a large component of that. Uh, we're also going to have outreach with our LGBTQ community, our faith communities, and really any group that feels isolated or marginalized. Yeah, well, let's talk about the the work in particular associated with this group. So it's it's about contacting these groups and doing what, having what kinds of conversations. And well, are are you looking at them as potential victims of extreme violence or potential committers of it? Well, a little bit of both. We we don't we don't expect we don't anticipate anyone that will be a potential committer. Problem is. is that you don't know. There's no one way to identify how somebody could become radicalized and take that step towards violence. So what we really want to do is just start the conversation in the community. Let all community members know, including our new immigrants and refugees, about what violent extremism is, ways to be mindful of it happening in your community, and most importantly, provide resources and an off-ramp for those members in the community that might be becoming radicalized, uh, immigrant, refugee, or otherwise. What other communities would you want to make inroads into? Well, as I said, we want to make inroads with all of our diverse communities. This is going to become part of our community policing model. Uh, We're going to have – we're going to train 300 of our patrol officers, our community resource officers, our school resource officers. We're going to have significant outreach in Denver public schools. So we're really reaching across the board. As I said, we want to focus to one degree on our immigrant and refugee community, but this is going to become inclusive in all of our community policing efforts. In some regards, are you asking a community to police itself or surveil itself? No, no. We, we don't expect any surveillance of any kind to take place. We want community members to be mindful of what violent extremism is. What, what, yeah, say that. What would the signs be? What are you training officers to well, look if, out for? Well, if you see somebody in your, in your community, uh, and I'm talking about a family member or somebody you, you know through the community center who's becoming isolated, who is maybe experiencing suicidal thoughts, uh, maybe they've um, they've changed uh, their demeanor, and they're you notice they're watching uh, you know disturbing and alarming violent videos on YouTube. We want to provide resources at a grassroots level to off ramp that person to provide resources and help for them, not just necessarily from a law enforcement point of view, uh, but from a faith community as well. Uh, we're partnering with the University of Denver for the Colorado Resilience Collaborative. Um, it's all grassroots, and so we want to bring exposure to this to the community. And, uh, and really have the community take ownership for it. It sounds a bit like surveillance, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm being told to look out for something within my community. Well, you, well, you know, what, the, what we expect people to do is be mindful of everything happening in their community. I mean, you know, we expect you to leave your porch lights on at night. We expect you to close your garage door when you go to work in the morning. Uh, everyone to be a good neighbor. Be mindful and take ownership 
um, for the safety and security of your home and of your community. You mentioned radicalizing videos. I think you said YouTube, for instance. Is there some aspect of this training? And uh, if you're just tuning in, I'm Ryan Warner. You're listening to Colorado Matters. We're talking about the Denver Police Department landing a a pretty hefty grant from the federal government to counter violent extremism. Uh, Are you training officers to to be, in a way, police of cyberspace as well, to be aware that that radicalization can happen online? Well, yes, absolutely. We're training our officers to what violent extremism is, but we're going to have a training component for our community uh, that's really going to be based on internet safety. Uh, Be mindful of what your children might be watching um, and what it could potentially lead to. Uh, we want to have open community. We express we we expect people to have open lines communication with uh, uh, individuals in their family, and we want them to have open lines communication with us and law enforcement and the resources that we provide. As I said, hopefully off ramp somebody that might be coming radicalized. That I love that verb to off ramp somebody. What what would that look like? How how do you once they're <clears throat> once they're in? How do you? dissuade them. Is that part of the training? One of the things that we're doing with the University of Denver through the Colorado Resilience Collaborative is we're identifying um, resources that are available. Okay, Um, I'm talking about the faith community, members of church, of the mosque, of the synagogue who might be able to intervene and have a discussion with somebody to um, provide resources for them. Of course, we have mental health resources that are readily available to us in the city of Denver through our crisis services division, through our mental health clinicians that we work with every day of the week. Um, we have contact with our our grid, our gang reduction initiative in Denver. Um, we we have you a lot. See, you see gangs as we well do see as gangs. part of countering violent extremism. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's no sense in reinventing the wheel. We have significant and tremendous outreach with our gang uh, community and a gang initiative and prevention. And this is really a spinoff of that. It's ways to prevent violence from taking place within your community and, and making sure resources are available for those who might be prone to that. You talked about uh, the role schools will play, and I was surprised to learn that Goodwill Industries is involved in this work, countering violent extremism. Do you want to just say a few words about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Goodwill Industries right now they, in the metro area, they have mentorship programs with about 16,000 kids throughout the, the metro area. And so we're going to train a group of 20 uh, Denver police officers to become mentors through that uh, that Goodwill uh, initiative program. And they're going, we've identified uh, uh, 10 schools in Denver public schools, five middle schools and five high schools that we're going to have mentorship programs with Denver police involved uh, and Goodwill Industries. We're excited about that. It strikes me that if you are combating violent extremism, you are also potentially uh, thwarting those who would threaten law enforcement. Well, it, you know, it's an outreach effort for us. As I said, we want to bring exposure to this. We want to start the conversation, and the conversation's already been started. I mean, at the beginning of our talk, you mentioned Virginia. Um, the conversation's already there. We want to make sure that we're taking steps in our community uh, to prevent any kind of violence like that from taking place. But which law enforcement themselves could fall victim to even. Well, they could, absolutely. Uh-huh. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it, Lieutenant. I appreciate it, Ryan. He's Lieutenant Robert Wyckoff with the Denver Police Department. We talked about his efforts focusing on violent extremism in the city. The DPD has landed a grant of almost half a million dollars from the Department of Homeland Security for that work. The solar eclipse is Monday. You may be headed to Nebraska or Wyoming to get a good glimpse of it. Expect heavy traffic this weekend, according to the Colorado Department of Transportation. Now, although Colorado is not in the path of totality, there will be something to see here if weather cooperates. And there may be something to hear. (laughs) 
Those cheers came during a total eclipse in the Mediterranean in 2006, recorded by my guest, astronomer Doug Duncan. He directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space science. And you seem about as happy as a kid in a candy factory right now. You got it, Ryan. It's been four years of planning and waiting, and I just can't wait for this eclipse to happen. Yeah, tell us how rare this event is, a total solar eclipse crossing the continental U.S. from from sea to shining sea. That hasn't happened for about a century. Wow. About half the United States got a, a continental U.S. got an eclipse in 79, but the whole country hasn't been crossed like this in a century. Okay, remind us what happens in a total solar eclipse, the basic science. Yeah, here. so it's pretty easy. The moon gets between you and the sun and blocks it out. Yes, in just the perfect alignments. And we're very, very fortunate because the moon's 400 times smaller than the sun. And by good fortune, it's 400 times closer. So they look the same size in the sky. Ah, that's the lineup. In Colorado, we'll have a partial eclipse, not a total eclipse. What will it look like in general if you stay within the the boundaries of Colorado? Right. So the biggest surprise to people is that it doesn't get significantly dark. And the reason for that is the sun is so incredibly powerful. You know, people talk about 95% eclipse. Uh, You should think of that as a 5% of the sun is still there eclipse. Believe it or not, 5% of the sun, a little sliver, is as bright as 20,000 full moons. So if you put 20,000 full moons in the sky, it doesn't get that dark. Okay. A little bit. A little bit. And the sun loses its power. Coloradans are used to standing outside on a sunny day and the sun beats down on you. And something weird happens because the sun's power to warm you goes away. Okay. So you won't be enveloped in darkness if you're not in that path of totality. But if you have the proper eyewear and you've brought some of that uh, with you today, these are eclipse glasses. Gosh, I could probably get about $100 for these uh, actually, on the black being, market. Actually, they're being scalped at 20 each, right, t- okay. today. The point is you put these on, and if you were just wearing them in the room as I you, am, you can't, you can't see, see anything, anything other than the filament of an incandescent light, maybe. If the, I have these and I'm in Colorado somewhere, yeah. what can I expect to see so not total darkness? little by little by little, the moon first takes a bite out of the sun, roughly 1020 in the morning on Monday, depending on where in Colorado Which you are. Which I'll note is, is during the first broadcast. Podcast of Colorado Matters. <laughs> no one will be listening. Okay. Uh, and so little by little, it covers more and more and more. And 1147 in Denver is when the maximum coverage is. And all that's left of the sun is just a sliver, like a little crescent moon. So if you can find a safe way to look, you can see that. Now, a couple of different ways. If you got the eclipse glasses, we have distributed 2.1 million of those from California to Maine. Oh. Grease Monkey and Channel 9 had them all over Denver. We had them up at in Boulder, and they're all gone. They're all gone. Where where are, are and, there perhaps pairs of these left? I don't think so. Oh, boy. I don't think so. I, I wandered through um, a Walmart, uh-huh. and I saw them on a rack, completely unnoticed by anybody. So there's a tiny chance, because they're not paying any attention at Walmart, that they might have them. What would you suggest? So call first is probably yeah, a good idea. What would you suggest if I just have no access to, to Take glasses? two pieces of paper, take a ballpoint pen and poke a little hole in one, hold the other one two or three feet away, and let the sunlight go through the little pinhole. It'll make a tiny image of the sun. Believe it or not, if you have a colander 
hold it out, and you'll get a hundred little eclipses. Hold it in front of a piece of paper. Anything that makes a pinhole. If, you, if you're near trees where the light is filtering to the ground, yeah. stand under the tree, and you'll get hundreds of shimmering little crescents. The light filtering through pinholes between the leaves of the tree. Oh, I love the idea of a tree as pinhole camera in right. some regards. The point is... Don't look directly at the eclipse. No, and you, I, I also like that the, uh, the state patrol was warning people not to wear their eclipse glasses behind, driving, the, behind the wheel. Right. So <laughs> uh, the equivalent of do and, not and, you eat know, on the to, silica packet. Just to put out one warning because I've been asked this so many times. Yeah. These eclipse glasses are not sunglasses. Sunglasses won't do. These are a thousand times darker. So you just can't use your sunglasses and look. You can share these glasses. It's just, you know... What will it feel like in uh, the places where the eclipse is total? That is completely different. You know, a partial eclipse, even 95% in Colorado, it's like listening to your favorite music with earbuds. A total eclipse is somebody gave you a ticket to the concert in front of the stage, no. and the band just hammers you, and you never forget it. That's some synesthesia there, mixing the visual and the auditory, <laughs> but what, what does it look like? So uh, the first thing you notice is a couple of minutes before totality, the whole landscape starts to shimmer and acquire a weird silvery color. And by now, it's already starting to get cold. Okay, so it's cold. Just the darkness is approaching, and then everything transforms like you're in a dream or you're, like you're underwater. But it still isn't totally dark because there's the tiniest sliver, and then you look off in the distance. And if there's mountains in the distance, 20 or, or seconds or so before the total eclipse, they vanish. And then the shadow hits you, and bam, instantaneously it's total. So there's a black hole in the sky where the sun should be. That's wrong. Pink flames of the sun's chromosphere and prominences around that. And big silver streamers stretching across the sky. And that's when people start to scream and to cry. Hmm. Animals do weird things. It looks like the end of the world. Well, we are animals, and we'll, we will do weird things, too. You've, you've seen almost 10 of these, you know. Uh, to scientists, the eclipse offers a, a unique opportunity for research. NASA is sending up two jets that will chase the eclipse as it moves across the United States. On board are instruments run by a team at Southwest Research Institute in Boulder. They will study the sun itself. Here's the project leader, Amir Kaspi. We are investigating the solar corona, the sun's outer atmosphere, that is only visible to the naked eye during a total solar eclipse. And we are trying to find out why it is so much hotter than the sun's visible surface. It's millions of degrees compared to only thousands of degrees for the surface below. We're also trying to find out how the corona stays so well organized. It's very well structured and smoothly combed as opposed to tangled and matted. And we're trying to understand why that is. In other words, the corona always has a good hair day. And the question is why? And it's not just the sun, Doug Duncan. Mercury is also a lot easier to see during a solar eclipse. And uh, these bolder scientists will be looking there too. We are trying to make the first ever heat map of Mercury's surface to find out how its temperature varies from the 750 to 800 degree Fahrenheit daytime temperatures to its minus 250 to 300 degree nighttime temperatures. Mercury is the closest planet to the sun, and it's never more than a few degrees away from the sun in the sky. So it's very difficult to observe Mercury at other times. 
You think the temperatures change a lot in Colorado? Try being on Mercury. Indeed. Uh, but there's a long history, really, of research going on during eclipses. There is. In the days before photography, you know, imagine, that's why it blew people's minds. Because all of a sudden, the sun looks so different. That corona is there all the time. The million-degree gas that streams off the sun and goes through space. And when that hits the Earth, it makes the northern lights. It can interfere with our satellites. So we really, it's important uh, scientifically and practically to know th these behaviors of the sun's outer atmosphere that stretches through space. But since that's fainter than the bright visible surface of the sun, you can only really see it well during an eclipse. Now, NASA has satellites, which are great for also studying the sun. So the combination of the two, we hope we, we, we get to know it better. I love that they're scrambling these jets for the eclipse. There's something uh, amazing about that, that I, I guess they'll follow the path and, of totality. And that makes it somewhat longer. Instead of getting two minutes and 20 seconds, as they will where I will be, um, you know, they might extend it to four or five minutes. If you could fly the supersonic Concorde, you could keep up with the shadow and have the entire flight be a total eclipse. And I tried to do that in 1999. But before we could fly the supersonic Concorde, it crashed and we ceased operation. That was going to be our charter plane. Wow. Yeah. There's a sad and missed opportunity. So where will you be for the total solar eclipse? <laughs> I will be on the golf and tennis course of Jackson, Wyoming, a beautiful, clear place. The, and the golf course is right on the center of the eclipse. And I'll be there with 300 friends. Whenever there's a total eclipse, I chase it every two to three years somewhere in the world. And this one, Jackson, Wyoming. And... and Remind us how long that experience of darkness will be. About two minutes, This you said? time, two minutes and 20 seconds, the fastest 220 of your life. Oh. I actually record a countdown on my phone because during totality, I look with binoculars at that incredible corona, the hair of the sun, only during totality. You can't do that any other time. And my, my recording tells me when it's time to put the binoculars down and get ready for the little diamond called the diamond ring when the sun reappears. It strikes me that this may be, well, uh, someone's first total eclipse or certainly first total eclipse in the smartphone selfie Instagram world. Uh, and people are, are what? They're going to have to, to try to help themselves against taking a photo directly of the solar eclipse, you know, right? Or um, what? Your phone cannot get a good picture of the eclipse, especially with a partial eclipse when some of the, some of the sun is still there. The reason you don't want to look at it with your eyes, like I said, is yeah. the sun is so powerful. If you look at it with the lens of your smartphone, you will melt the inside of the camera of your smartphone. So you don't want to just wow. point your phone unprotected at the sun. This has been great, Doug. Thanks for preparing us. Okay, here's to clear skies for all of us, Ryan. In, indeed. Why, have you looked at the forecast for Monday over a month? Oh, every day. Yeah. Every day. How's it looking over Colorado? Uh, a little yeah. touch and go. A little, okay. Yep. Not, it depends on which part of the state, but, you know, hold on, even with partial clouds, you can, you with the, with the eyewear protection, you can see it. Thanks for being with us and uh, giving me these glasses for the black market, I guess. Uh, Doug Duncan is it's, it's a pleasure always, director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He's going to be uh, near Yellowstone for the eclipse on Monday. And uh, that's a time we'll be watching the sky, but now a chance to hear 
the sky. NASA's Van Allen probes study the magnetic fields surrounding Earth. They're buzzing with high-energy particles and plasma waves. And uh, we have a recording of what that sounds like. Frozen, the Disney movie, is headed for Broadway. But before it gets there, the show undergoes a test run in Denver. Tonight's the premiere, and so cue the obligatory music. The past is in the past. Let it go, let it go. When I'll rise like the break of dawn. Let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. Frozen the musical runs through October 1st at the Buell Theater. New York Times theater reporter Michael Paulson wrote about what it takes to adapt a Disney hit for the stage. And Michael, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. Disney released Frozen in 2013, this reimagining of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Snow Queen. And it was, as you write, the highest grossing animated movie ever. But a hit on the big screen doesn't guarantee a hit on stage because... uh, Disney's, gosh, The Little Mermaid and Tarzan musicals didn't do so well. Describe the stakes for Disney here. Sure. Uh, uh, Disney has a fairly large operation in New York. It's the biggest commercial player on Broadway these days. There are currently two Broadway shows from Disney running, The Lion King, which has been running for 20 years, and Aladdin. Uh, And as you mentioned, its track record is mixed. It's had more hits than misses, but it's had a few significant misses. Frozen is an incredibly important brand to the company. It's generated a huge amount of money for Disney. The film uh, grossed more than a billion dollars globally. And there are adaptations of the film now running on cruise ships and in theme parks. There's, of course, a huge amount of merchandise uh, driven by Frozen, Uh, Anna and Elsa Halloween costumes, for example. It's important to Disney that it get this right. And when a Broadway show goes well, it can make a lot of money. Uh, The Lion King, for example, has made more than $7 billion, the stage production of The Lion King in its history. Oh, my goodness. Do you know how much they've spent so far on the stage adaptation of Frozen? Well, uh, the estimate is that it's going to be between 25 and $30 million just to get to Broadway. That's the amount of cost to, just to develop it as a stage musical. The process of turning the film into a musical has taken years. And in your reporting, you bring up an interesting dilemma for the creators of this show. Quote, finding the right balance between replica and reinvention. You got a fair amount of access to this creation process, uh, including attending some rehearsals in New York and tech rehearsals here in Denver. It's sort of this soft launch. What would you say that that balance ended up being between replica and reinvention? Yeah, it's an interesting challenge for Disney and for others who are trying to adapt movies and especially animated movies for the stage. Uh, the, the mediums are, of course, quite different. To start with, a uh, stage musical has much more music than a film. The, the movie, Frozen, has seven and a half songs, and the stage musical is going to have about 20 songs. Oh. So the writers had to get back together and write a whole bunch more music. 
But also, when you think about it, movies have the advantage, even when they're animated, of close-ups to show emotion on characters' faces. And they also tend to have a lot more action, which is often more vivid on film than on stage. Uh, the advantage of the stage is that it can often add kind of emotional and psychological complexity. And so what you're going to see with Frozen on stage is that the characters' backstories are more fully fleshed out. Uh, the relationship between Anna and Elsa is a little more detailed and there's more time spent on their relationship uh, with their parents. Uh, and then some of the male characters who you might know and love, like Olaf and Kristoff and uh, Oaken, who's the guy who runs the trading post, each of them get a chance to kind of tell their own stories, often in humorous and sometimes in deep ways. So that'll be... Uh, new material for Frozen fans. The basic arc of the story uh, remains identical to the film, uh, but there's a lot more uh, detail to the characters as you go along. Did you like the new music? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some of it seems great. I haven't heard it all, uh -huh. but uh, I did hear some of it, and there are some songs that I think people will remember. I'd like to ask you about one scene in particular, one that I imagine fans of the movie will be curious to see adapted for stage, and it's when the lead character, Elsa, Queen of Arendelle, sings the ballad Let It Go, and she uses her special powers to create an ice palace in the film. Uh, what can you reveal about how that comes together on stage? Sure. I mean, first, as you sort of suggest, that song has been unbelievably popular. It's been streamed online hundreds of thousands of hundreds of well, I'm going to forget the number, but a lot of a times lot. <laughs> it's been covered by many, many people. Uh, and, of course, anyone who has kids knows that it became incredibly popular among children, many of whom tried to sing it themselves. It's a really hard song to sing, but children seem to lack the kind of inhibitions that prevent a lot of adults from trying <laughs> that one. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's a little deeper in the, in the stage musical than in the film because it seemed born to be an act one closer. And that's where it is at the end of the first act, about an hour in. Uh, Elsa, as you say, has become queen. Uh, but she's lost her temper at the coronation ceremony at her sister uh, and accidentally creates a damaging ice strike that frightens both the townspeople and her. And she flees up a mountain. And at the top of that mountain, she sings this power ballad that is now so famous uh, in which she uh, moves toward accepting this power that she has that she has always been frightened of, that she has struggled her whole life to control, has been unable to control, and now she is embracing it. Uh, so she sings this song. She's belting. The actress who performs as Elsa, her name is Casey Levy. She has an amazing voice. Uh, and meanwhile, she is starting to use her power to create winter, to create snow and ice, not just for destruction, but for beauty. And she imagines that she's going to cloister herself at the top of this mountain and she constructs for herself a new home, a palace made of ice and snow. This all sounds impossible yeah. to execute on a limited stage. It's really challenging, right? This is not film now. You're talking about physical effects and this, uh, you know, the stage can be incredibly magical, but there are also limits. Uh, one of the challenges for Disney is going to be to to awe the audiences in Denver. So there will be 
walls of ice, and there will be snow falling from the from the fly, the the theater's ceiling, and there will be dry ice underneath. There will be kind of fog rising. There will be video projection. There will be very dramatic sound. Uh, they're going to do their best to create a memorable spectacle that is going to send people out into the lobby at intermission with their jaws agape. And why do they do this, uh, Michael Paulson from the New York Times? Why do they do this in Denver? What What is it about, I don't know, this market or, or this yeah. uh, theater complex? Uh, the DCPA. Yeah, it's an excellent question. So first I should say Broadway is incredibly expensive. It costs a ton of money to get here. So 30 million bucks for Frozen and most shows fail. So it's a very high risk uh, operation and almost all musicals are tested somewhere outside of New York because the costs are lower and it's a chance to let audiences tell the creators what's working and what's not working so they can change it before they come to Broadway. So why Denver? There's a couple reasons. I mean, one is the size of the theater, which is quite large. The theater has to be bigger than the theater in New York because they're not going to rebuild the sets. So Disney has created the sets for Denver, uh, and they're planning to move them to Broadway. Uh, Second is there has to be a large enough population to support a relatively long run, whereas a kind of touring Broadway show might be somewhere for a couple weeks. Frozen is going to be in Denver for seven weeks. So uh, the Denver Center draws from a large geographic area, and it has enough people to to create an audience every night for seven weeks. Third, Disney has a fair amount of history with Denver. It started the national tour of The Lion King there in 2002. And in 2007, that's where the pre-Broadway production of The Little Mermaid was. So Disney is comfortable that... Uh, Denver works for them, and in particular that the stage crews there are open to making changes uh, almost on a nightly basis. Because as this show is running in Denver, the creative team and Disney executives and the writers will all be in the back of the theater, or they'll sit in different seats around the theater night after night. They'll be looking for things that aren't working, listening for jokes that don't land, uh, and they'll be reworking it, and the cast will be rehearsing every day before they perform, and so changes are made as they go along, and that requires stagehands who are willing to make adaptations as you go, and Denver has that as well. And so Denver audiences will be shaping what Disney hopes Uh, to be a long run on Broadway. Michael, thank you for being with us. Thank you. New York Times theater reporter Michael Paulson. You can read his story about Disney's new adaptation of Frozen at cprnews.org. The show debuts tonight in Denver and runs through October 1st, as we said before heading to Broadway. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The sadness and loneliness often heard in bluegrass are what attracted Johnny Miller to the genre. He says something about that sad sound made him happy during a difficult time. It led him to pick up a mandolin and start a bluegrass band in Denver called The Lonesome Days. Does this sad song have an end? Is there a rest anywhere inside? This tortured voice playing me. In sunshine in the night The singer is so weary The crowd can taste the pain 
Not on the note that's bright or cheery There's no hope in his refrain you're hearing Anthem for the Lonely off the Lonesome Days debut album recorded at E-Town Hall in Boulder. It's out next week. Miller and his bandmate, banjo player Todd Lilienthal, are here with a preview. And gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank hey, you very much. Thanks for having us. What a voice you have. My goodness, I get goosebumps when I hear that song. Johnny, before starting this band, you'd gone through a divorce. And I understand it hit you hard and in a way motivated you to start this band. How so? Yeah, well, that was like uh, nine years ago. I I got married really, really young, you know, and uh, kind of found bluegrass towards the end of that that whole thing. And uh, basically when when I was in the position where uh, I was single again for the first time in five years, uh, the music kind of became my therapy, you know, and I would sit and play the mandolin for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, I would go to work for eight hours, come home and play the mandolin for, you know, two, three, sometimes 10 hours, you know, then I would get a couple hours of sleep and go back to work and do it all over again. It was cathartic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It would, uh, the mandolin was kind of where it all started. And then, uh, I started to scratch down, you know, some lyrics and stuff. And, uh, and then the songwriting kind of joined as like an equal partner in that, um, you know, therapeutic release. It's just like a place to put, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, you're so sad. All your songs are so sad. Why don't you write a happy song? Well, you know, it's a, it's a really good place to put those, those, um, those feelings. And and it, it feels like they're out of you at that point. You, you release them. Well, more on the formation of the band in a, in a bit, but is it a bummer to be playing nothing but sad songs, Todd? I don't think so. The, the way that I see it is, you know, sometimes the lyrics might be sad and they may, might be kind of introspective. But if you really listen to the feel of the music, it can actually be really uplifting, kind of what Johnny's saying, you know, getting all those things out there. And it's stuff that everybody feels. So it's it's cool to be making things that we feel like people can identify with. Yeah, I think there's something unique to bluegrass in which a single song can hold the tension of sadness and joy. I, I, there, I don't know. There's just something about the genre to me. Uh, but I understand that the, a competition in Telluride was really the kind of gelling force for creating a band out of this. Yeah. Work. Yeah. So I was, uh, I believe it was 2014 when uh, some good friends of ours, uh, Trout Steak Revival, won the band competition. And, um, you know, they're, they're friends that I've uh, co-written with and uh, would play music with all the time. And I was camped with them that year. This is at the Telluride at Bluegrass Festival. Right. Yeah, the, the same festival. And uh, I was camped with them the year that they won it. And it was just a real inspiration to see, like, my close friends be so successful. And they, you know, they obviously are doing great now and uh, for themselves, and they still inspire me to this day. But uh, it became, like, a real uh, goal. And about a month and a half later, I started um, – I actually – Quit my quit my full time job, um, found a a part time job as an electrician installing solar, and uh, I just want to say hi to all my Namaste solar friends. Hey everybody! Okay, and then uh, shameless business plug sorry, on the radio. I'm all right, sorry. Well, you know artists are always hawking merch, right? So, but they are NPR listeners okay. or CPR <laughs> listeners. So, <laughs> so that's when you you got a band together. And uh, Todd, do you remember the phone ringing or what? I do. Uh, yeah, I was in in Seattle at the time, and Johnny calls me up, and that was basically the introduction. Is you know we were good friends and, and musical buddies for a long time, but he says, you know, I want to make this band, and I want to go compete in Telluride at the band competition. Are, are you in? And it was it was a no brainer. It was something that all of us wanted to do. You've yeah. been runner up twice. 
Twice. Twice. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. The, you're the Susan Lucci so far <laughs> of bluegrass. Uh, I want to hear more music, and I, I do want to know how you essentially taught yourself the mandolin late, later in life. But here's from the new album, Chasing Down the Whiskey. Well, it breaks my heart every time I start. Chasing down the whiskey with my tears Chasing down the whiskey Chasing down the whiskey Chasing down the whiskey with my tears Chasing down the whiskey Chasing down the whiskey Chasing down the whiskey with my tears Oh, that idea of a tears chaser it's so it's so country, salty, <laughs> salty. How how did you learn to play the mandolin? Uh, um, I had a coworker. Like I was, I was uh, just doing con- construction only at that time. I was an electrician, and uh, a, another a buddy that I had done a lot of projects with uh, said that he had uh, a cousin who was a mandolin teacher. After I I got one of on my own, so um, I got a I, I worked with him. Uh, f- his name is Nick Amadeo. I, w- I worked with him for about a year and a half, um, you know, once a week. And um, but then, you know, after the lesson, I would immediately continue to put those hours in. Yeah. And then um, that is to say, your your sadness and isolation actually wound up being really productive oh, musically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the way it is for like a lot of people. Like, um, it's that time that you spend by yourself, um, and uh, you get to just like kind of let go of everything around you and just focus on the music and it, it, it builds a lot of focus. And, uh, I, I just can't say enough what it, what it's done for me, like, you know, emotionally and mentally over the years, it's just, it's like a healing force in my life for sure. Todd, what has bluegrass done for you and, and what attracted you to it? Well, what attracted me to it? Uh, first, I guess I was, I was going to see you up in Boulder and working at the Fox theater and, and saw a bunch of the the great bands that were around in the late nineties and early two thousands. And I grew up in California, so I didn't really have a lot of exposure to bluegrass and the banjo, um, and working at the Fox, you know, occasionally walk in and, and see these bands and, and a couple banjo players in particular, uh, the, the late Mark van from leftover salmon one night in particular walked yes. in and, uh, and saw him playing an acoustic show with those guys. And I just thought to myself, I, I really need to learn how to do that. So you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Johnny Miller and Todd Lilienthal. They are half of the Denver Bluegrass Quartet, The Lonesome Days. Their debut album is out next week, and uh, I want to ask about that whiskey song and whether you were drinking a lot when you wrote it. <laughs> yeah, um, there was a transition there, right? Um, you know, I started going to all these bluegrass festivals, and, you know, whiskey is kind of a real theme in the music, and you know, it tastes good. And, uh, so I started, yeah, I did start drinking quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I remember specifically the night and I'm sure I had a, a, a glass of whiskey on the, on the table when I was writing that song. Um, it's the first bluegrass song I ever wrote. And, um, you know, it's just, it's also like, it's just kind of a theme in the music, you know, there's the, the hard times, um, you know, there's, there's so many songs about, whiskey in general in you know country and and bluegrass music and uh it kind of 
I just I guess the line just kind of came to me, and I built the song around around that one line. Are you okay now? Yeah, I'm doing good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Chasing down the whiskey, chasing down the whiskey, my tears. Chasing down the whiskey, chasing down the whiskey, chasing down the whiskey, my tears. What would you say makes a good bluegrass song, Todd? Oh man, I mean, I'm I'm biased. I, I I love the banjo, but I what I really enjoy listening to is the traditional arrangement of bass and mandolin and guitar and banjo and the and the harmonies that can come into place that have people have been perfecting for many decades. I just uh, I'm a I'm kind of a big fan of the of the classic style, um, you know, from instrumentally. And I guess I could answer that question vocally as as well. I, oh. mean, I, I think the the storytelling, um, and it's one of the reasons why I love being in a band with with Johnny and and Sam and Bradley is uh, the focus on the storytelling and, and bringing the emotive aspect out of the music is is so important to me. Yeah, so Johnny, you and another bandmate, a guitarist Sam Parks, do the bulk of the songwriting. Yeah, and right. another tune you wrote is "Who's Gonna Cry." Who's gonna cry for me? I go, who cry for me? Who on this earth is gonna miss me so? When I go, who cry for me? You graduated from Columbine High School in 1998. 1998, yeah. And I understand that this song speaks indirectly to the events that happened there the year after you graduated. Of course, two students killed a dozen classmates and a teacher. Uh, will you share a bit more about this song? Yeah, so actually, the the day that I wrote this song, it was the day of the Pulse nightclub shooting. In Orlando. Yeah, in Orlando. And um, every time there's one of those kind of incidents, uh, you know, because I wasn't at the school that day, but I did. I lived in the neighborhood across the street. I was working in Frisco. I came straight down the mountain and uh, tried to get into my neighborhood. And, you know, there was, like, my entire neighborhood was, like, barricaded. I had to show, you know, ID and, like, two forms of ID to get back to my house. Um, and it, it was just, it, but I was, it was more the, the aftermath, like, what it did to our community. Um, it, it brought the community together, um, but the... But every time one of those things happens, uh, it affects me pretty deeply. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that time in my life and and what it did um, to all those families and and just to the community in general. And what so, what are you saying in in this song? Well, there there's just that the idea and the concept that even um, even if you're you're dying in a room full of people. Um, like in the like they did like those p- people did in those situations that um, that experience is still like a very individual experience. Um, yeah, and I know that's a real bummer, but that's just that's just what kind of hit me that night when I heard about the shooting in Orlando. That I was kind of imagining all these people. Um, and even if someone was there holding them or they were next to someone else that was was about to go as well, that, that it's a singularly 
um, it's a singular experience. You're the only one that experiences that that moment for yourself, no matter where you are, who you're with. Mm. Uh, which seems appropriate in a way for a band called The Lonesome Days. Thank, thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Johnny Miller and Todd Lilienthal, members of the Denver Bluegrass Quartet, The Lonesome Days. Their debut album is out next week, and they have a release party at Stem Ciders in Denver next Friday. And laugh at my grave as the clouds fall down on my bones. flowers and tears It don't matter Cause we all die alone This is Colorado Matters from CPR News I'm Ryan Moore gonna cry For me when I go